0: So yeah, that is why Dom Perignon is not necessarily truly known for inventing sparkling wine, but really elevating the quality of the wines and champagne in general.
1: You're listening to The Vint Podcast, bringing you expert interviews, alternative market insights and exclusive access to the world of wine and spirits investing. Enjoy the show.
2: Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to another episode of The Vint Podcast. Billy's here talking my ear off about sparkling and Dom Perignon and everything to know about champagne. But before we get into some of that, just did want to tell you about special guests that we have on today. So stay tuned. For the end of the episode, for the interview, we have Tim Irwin, who is the general manager, is a general manager at Treasury Wine Estates overseeing the global Penfolds brand. You may recognize Penfolds as The really popular Australian wine producer specializing especially in Australian Syrah or Shiraz and also bringing labels to Napa Valley and other parts of the world where they're making some really interesting bottlings. So yeah, Tim sheds a lot of insight or gives us a lot of insight into how a brand like Penfolds, which has such a storied history and such a broad and influential presence in both the consumer wine market and in the secondary market with some of their mm-hmm. bottlings like Grange, which we featured a collection of, really shares a lot about the story behind the brand and some of the challenges and opportunities that Penfolds faces, you know, as they look to the next 50 years of their label. So stay tuned for that. But before we roll into the interview, Billy, you want to elaborate a little bit more on sparkling and champagne and and you were getting into some of the history of Dom Perignon.
0: Yeah. Yeah. We figured for this pre New Year's episode, we would, you know, give a little bit of sparkling wine 101, and I would share a couple fun facts that you guys can drop at your your holiday parties this weekend. So, yeah, we'll just take one step back and do a quick 101 on sparkling wine. So, the two main ways, and there are technically three ways that sparkling wines are made, two main ways. One, and it all has to do with where the secondary fermentation is. So, if, if you're not familiar with that, basically what Sparkling wine, how it's made is they'll make a base wine, they'll basically take grapes, make it like a regular white wine. Then they put it into another vessel. This is where it kind of diverges. The second vessel can be another bottle or it can be a tank based on wherever they put it. No matter what, they're gonna pour a little bit more sugar and yeast and nutrients in to generate a secondary fermentation. So at this point, the wine is nine to 10% alcohol. This next fermentation, the yeast eats a little bit of the sugar And it creates a little bit more alcohol, putting it between, you know, 11, 12. But what's really interesting here is the CO2 is the other output that yeasts produce. When they're eating the sugar, they produce alcohol, CO2, a, a few other things, but we don't need to get in the weeds there. And what happens when it's in a bottle or in a special tank that is kind of pressurized is those bubbles are captured. So basically, the sparkling wine that you drink, the bubbles come from the yeast emitting CO2 during fermentation. And the main difference between the two techniques are when it's in a tank method, the yeast are able to kind of float all the way down to the bottom. This is sometimes called a Charmot method or the Martinotti method. And this produces basically a large volume of wine that's not necessarily in contact with these dead yeast, also known as the lees. So it creates more of a fresher, fruitier style of wine. If it's in the bottle, there's less volume of wine to the ratio of yeast. So that creates a really kind of yeasty, sometimes biscuity, brioche kind of style of wine. The third kind of lesser-known style, you may be seeing it more now in your natural wine shops, is either a pet net, where they'll pour basically a still-fermenting wine into a bottle, and that allows it to get a little bit of effervescence, but it's going to be a little lower pressure in terms of like the bubbles inside, and it'll be a little sweeter. The other style you might have seen this before is Moscato di Asti or Asti wines. This is a really fascinating style. It's kind of taking the U.S. by storm. I don't know if anybody's heard of Stella Rosa, but that's technically a type of Moscato di And it's one of the most sold wines in the United States right now. But this produces basically a semi-sweet, semi-sparkling wine that is started as juice in a tank. They heat up the juice. It starts a little bit of the fermentation. They get a little bit of bubbles, they get their sugar right. And then they close the doors, let it keep fermenting a little bit more, capture a little bit of bubbles, and then they'll cool it down. And just bottle it right from there under pressure. So that creates this kind of semi sweet process or semi sweet sparkling wine all in one little go rather than having to do two stages. Well, yeah, those are, the, those are the three main types. And I guess types of each of these secondary fermentation in the bottle is technically used to be called the Method Champenoise. It's called the traditional method. And this basically covers wines like Champagne, Cava. Some Proseccos are made in this way, but most of those are tank method. And yeah, a lot, a lot of the wines you'll see in, in the U.S. too tend to be made sparkling wines in the U.S. are tank method, unless specifically stated that they're traditional method. My favorite happens to be traditional method just because I really like that yeasty, yeasty notes. You know, if you really want like a, a floral, fruity, forward style, that's easy drinking, something to put in your
2: mimosas, I would definitely recommend the tank method wines. And also Cremant as well, right? traditional method from Alsace or Bourgogne or something like this, right? Mm -hmm. So basically, Mm -hmm. if a wine is made in a traditional method in
0: France outside of Champagne is nowadays called Cremant de whatever. So if it's from the Loire, it's called Cremant de Loire. If it's from Alsace, Cremant de Alsace. In my studies, it's been interesting to read about those because what Cremant kind of means is like creamy. So a lot of these regions were known for having also a style of wine that was a little softer than champagne. Maybe the like the pressure is a little less. It comes off, the, the bubbles seem a little bit more creamy, and it's more of like a rich experience while still refreshing being bubbly. Something I found interesting yesterday was my studies. So before Cremant, they used to be called mousseau, which basically described the mousse that would come up with like the bubbles that like foam at the top is called the mousse. Cause it looked like mousse and they used to be called Mousseau wines and apparently Burgundy still has a classification of Mousseau wines, but it's only for red sparkling, which oh, wow. I thought was weird, <laughs> but I'm fact. surprised they're even allowed to make that. Yeah. I think it's kind of grandfathered <laughs> in, but you know, it has to be the standard grapes. I think Gamay is even allowed to be made in hmm. that mix, but it can only be like one fifth of the blend. Cause you know, back in the day, the Dukes in Burgundy hated Gamay. So outlawed it basically but yeah so the, that's kind of the 101 is there is there anything we're kind of missing Brady, on how you know these things are made and and what to look for when you're trying to pick
2: out one and uh, answer this if you make cremant out of burgundy are they allowed to use pinot meunier no that's not allowed in burgundy not allowed so even when they're making this so it's either going to be blanc de noir like just pinot noir or, Noir, I, like i was saying for, at least for this muso one
0: they allow a little bit of gamay and then okay the white grapes chardonnay and aligote sure. um, okay so they might use both for yeah. the most part and there, there's some like obscure white grapes that are also allowed in burgundy but for the mm-hmm. most part those are going to be the grapes that are allowed okay yeah cool but yeah so there's you'll see also something ca- sometimes called cremante lamou which is interesting because it's in the way south by the pyrenees and that's where a lot of really wine nerdy historians claim that sparkling wine was actually first created on purpose, like purposely left some sparkle in the bottle. And if you don't have any other questions, I can go into a
2: little bit of these fun facts here. I was just going to note that, you know, fans of champagne are typically looking for that, like brioche, creamy, yeasty note in in their sparkling wines in a way to get that similar type of experience with wines outside of champagne, which might be, you know, maybe a lower price point maybe a little bit better value for Mm -hmm. some folks is to look for that, you know, maybe a traditional method indication on the bottle that can, you know, give you an indication that maybe that wine at least was made in a similar kind of style. It doesn't always mean that it will taste quote unquote, like champagne, but at least was made in a different style or in that similar style. And you can find that on, you know, different sparkling producers in the U S. So maybe we should give some recommendations some of our favorites. I will go first
0: there. If you're looking for, Really good value traditional method. I would. I don't think you can beat cava's price points. You know, you can even get a ten dollar bottle of cava that to be called cava has to be made in the traditional method. The way that they're able to save a little bit of money is traditionally champagnes where the riddling process where you have to get the yeast out once it's you know made in this secondary method in the bottle. So. Technically, it was invented by the widow Clicquot, or at least Bouve Clicquot, her company, back in, I think it was like 1810. The process of riddling is basically turning the bottle from it's laid flat while it's aging and then slowly tipping it up so that all the yeast slides into the neck. And it's done in this little triangular kind of rack called a pupitra, pupitra, excuse my French. <laughs> you could also say bless you. And then that takes about eight weeks, that whole process to slowly ease the yeast down because you don't want it like flying all around the bottle and like Lee's stirring process, it can change the the nature of the wine. And the Spanish invented this technique or a machine called a pallet, or that's kind of a French accent, but pallet. Basically, it's this cage that you put basically a pallet of bottles in, and it can do the whole process in three mm-hmm. to four days. So yeah. the Spanish are able to crank out these, these wines that are traditionally made, but in a larger volume. And you're going to see that throughout the world now, that technology kind of swept all over. But the interesting part about cabas are when they age, some of the grapes, the pata yada, pata yada yeah. And giarello grapes, I believe these are the two out of the three, that they become smokier over time rather than toastier. So you might notice that a little bit more austere and kind of, kind of cool smoke in the bottle rather than maybe warm, toasty bread that you might see in the champagne.
2: Yeah, it's kind of an example of, I mean, there, there are a few producers, well, many producers who are using that, you know, the zero palette technology, you know, even in champagne, but then for their top labels, they might still do the like traditional Mm -hmm. kind of riddling process. And so, I mean, it just stood out to me as an example of typically what you might be paying for when you move from like the mid tier of a producer's label to the top tier is just like more hands-on time in process of making that wine spent on it. And so, you know, for the top labels, you might expect for a producer to still be extremely hands-on, quarter turns of the bottle to, you know, to get that yeast down to the neck. And just, yeah, kind of a clear example of of how prices change, and you know, based on how much contact the producer has with the product. Yeah. And I think another recommendation I would
0: give to anyone is if you see a traditional method wine made from a region you don't expect i think one of brady's favorites is from armenia i'm a huge fan of tasmanian if you can find them mm-hmm. but basically if somebody took the time to make a traditional method sparkling wine somewhere like it's going to be good i mean maybe not like your favorite style but like they took a lot of time and care to make this quality will be will be high and the quality of the fruit It'll will be well high. made in yeah, theory yeah sure but a lot of time and effort went into So i have always i always snap those up and i think they're They're amazing. We came across one in our journeys to Willamette Valley in the spring. Do you want to give a shout out to our
2: buddies at Granville? Yeah. So Granville Wine Company in the Dundee Hills produces some really wonderful Pinot Noir and Chardonnay, especially the Chardonnay. I think we were all fans of when we were up on their property the first time together having it. But they also make a Blanc de Noir, a sparkling wine from Pinot Noir, which is, you know, one of my favorites. And I think they're on their I think they're on their second bottling now. I think they did the 2017, 2018 was what we just had shipped. But yeah, the Holstein family up there are incredible hosts. They have one of the most beautiful properties that I've been able to to visit. Just really awesome family who understands what it takes to not just make a wine, but but farm a vineyard and be hands-on with the final product. Yeah,
0: And I just like that as a good example of you know it's from a region some people most people won't think sparkling i mean Argyle is from there i think that's a, a good example sure. of yeah one but they to your point the vintages you just referenced 2017 2018 they they're not only making these they're taking the time to have them properly age and and yeah. really carefully you know thoughtfully make these wines so i think those are fun do you have any other recommendations for people as they go into the new year
2: yeah i mean i, I liked your your cava recommendation of Vigno. A V I N Y O is a pretty like commercially available, like widely distributed label, which I personally really like. You know, something that you might also find on uh, a wine list. You know, by the glass, relatively regularly. So that's a good introduction and something that you'd be able to find probably right away, even at a grocery store if your state <laughs> yeah. sells alcohol in grocery stores. A fun fact on, or not a fun
0: fact, but something you could also look for for Kava is there's a, a small group called the Corpinot. C-O-R-P-I-N-A-T. There might be an extra consonant in there, but Corponat is basically a group of like original Cava makers who were like, we hold ourselves to this really high standard. And now all the Spanish wine in Spain made to an certain extent, the regions cover most of Spain. If as long as it's made the traditional method, they're you know using the right grapes, they can call it Cava. So they are like, how do we differentiate ourselves? So they call themselves that now. So if you ever see nut on anything, it's really well-made Old school bottling. It's kind of like looking for the VDP in in Germany on some Riesling, so or right. you know, some of the German. Yeah,
2: Riesling. so I mean, you, you gave some tips. I think another another tip is like if you go into your local wine shop and you're not quite sure what you're looking for, but you want sparkling, maybe in this traditional method that we've described. You know, ask someone. Hey, can you show me some traditional method sparkling wines and maybe from some different regions? I'm sure they'll have a few selections there. And Yeah, that's just a a kind of an an easy phrase to get you kind of to that next level of exploring some stuff that, you know, is going to be high quality, high quality juice, and they'd be happy to show you. And you can, you still can never go wrong with the big
0: champagne names, like the ones everybody loves and knows. I think that those are always crowd pleasers, but they are more expensive this year than they were this time last year. So yeah, definitely worth seeking out that value and or those fun bottles so you can tell some stories, but on the champagne side, speaking of names we know, I just wanted to share a couple fun facts. One, Dom Perignon didn't, there's no real evidence that he invented sparkling wine. Like I said, it probably came from Lemieux. But what but the reason he is so famous in the region is because he basically was fastidious both in the vineyards and in the winery. And he basically kind of raised the quality of champagne to a new level. So one innovation he was known for doing is the pruning of the vines in the winter. He basically revolutionized the approach to a thoughtful viticultural approach. Two, he emphasized that when you're bringing the grapes in, you shouldn't crush them too much too early, creating this oxidation or starting fermentation early. He basically, nobody mm. ever thought about that? And he was like, you know, let's bring them in carefully whole bunches because that's really important in champagne. They bring in whole bunches. They put them in these kind of flat presses and they slowly press them. Otherwise, you're going to get a really kind of weird base wine. And the last part was... And this is something that Peter Lehm mentions in his book as his favorite part is blending of different crews. So he understood that these chalky soils produced a really austere, sharp Chardonnay, and maybe something from the Montagne de Rennes or Rennes producing more of a rounder Pinot Noir and how to blend those together and to make a really cohesive wine. So that's why he was famous. And then, as with any famous people, as his legend kind of grew, everybody like years after he died, like decades and even centuries to start attributing other things to him because they're like, Oh, this guy knew what he was doing. He must've invented this and that,
2: and this. And the label with his namesake is certainly an aspirational brand that is champagne in itself almost. Right. But it's cool that it's a tribute to like, he wasn't just a rich guy who owned something. Mm-hmm. He actually
0: contributed to the quality of the wine. So it made me appreciate that a little bit more. Same with Vuv clico You know, she literally means the widow Clico. she basically joined, was working at this company, um, with her husband, like they started it together. Technically, you know, he was kind of, this was the early 1800s, late 1700s, early 1800s. So females weren't driving businesses, but then he died and she just picked up the reins and ran the whole company, innovated, like I was saying earlier, helped drive the innovation of like riddling, the comet vintage. That's the other thing I wanted to mention from 1811. It is like now the password to my phone because I think it's so cool. It was the first year that they really (laughs) marked a vintage and I read about it in the the VuClico book. They put a little comment on the bottom of the cork and it was the first time people were going around because they didn't have labels. They didn't have really marking. So you just had to like kind of remember when these wines were made or where they were from. But this vintage was so good that they were like, we have to like mark this one.
2: Mark it somewhere. Uh, So I think that's pretty neat. Well, when all of you Vint podcast fans are mobbing billy in the streets of la when you recognize him in public just remember his phone password you can get in there it's <laughs> information oh yeah well i can tell you my ipad
0: is the classification of bordeaux do you remember what date that is <laughs> I, I don't know eight eight shoot 18
2: fi, uh 55 yeah Six, there you go 1855 <laughs>
0: nice all right. Well, let's, doxed. Let's, <laughs> you've been doxxed. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Let's get to our interview with, with Tim Irwin. Like Brady mentioned earlier, Penfolds is an iconic brand. It's actually one of the few that I knew from Australia before I went down and worked my vintage. He had overseen basically all the global brands for Treasury Wine Estates. And Treasury Wine Estates is one of the most prestigious wine holding companies in the world. And Penfolds is their flagship brand. And he was nice enough to come on and really give us a deep history. He's from Australia, and so that always helps to hear about Penfolds from a guy with an Australian accent. But he was great; <laughs> had had so many fun stories about the history of the brand, where they were going, all the unique things that they're doing, and all the time and care they make they take into putting into their wines. So I hope you enjoy the interview. Hi Tim, thank you so much for joining today. Ah, uh, awesome to be with you guys yeah so we've we've mentioned a little bit already but could you give us a little bit more background on to kind of how you got to Penfolds and I guess basically how you got into wine in general and where you're kind of from actually it sounds obviously like you're from Australia but uh, yeah. let me start there
3: yeah, don't let the funny accent fool you. Originally from Australia, but no, the it really kicked off for me back when I was a teenager and, and the young drinking age of eighteen, which was legal in France. And trip to Bordeaux led into a degree in viticulture and winemaking, which I cut my teeth and kind of the production side of things. And then mm. about sixteen years ago, I actually moved to the, the United States and had a number of different wine jobs here. But about you know eleven, twelve years ago, it led me to Penfolds. So. Penfolds in in Australia is, is kind of a cultural icon and, and Grange, our flagship, is a, a huge aspiration. But they're not just in Australia, around the world. It's obviously one of the well-respected wineries. So it's kind of a, a dream come true. It's all come together in terms of the journey. But no, it's exciting and every day is exciting. And, you know, it's an amazing company and, and winery to work for.
0: Where we in talk- Australia, Sorry, I'll oh, have in first for somebody there. Just a quick question. Where in Australia were you working originally when you were kind of cutting your teeth through?
3: Yeah, I'm originally from Sydney and then I worked for a, four, a small family winery called Low Family Wines in a town called Mudgee. So mm-hmm. Zinfandel, which is obviously a bit more prominent in the US and other parts of the world, not as much so in Australia. That was their flagship. So wow. really kind of they're organic and biodynamic and, you know, trying different ferment treatments and things like that. So they were kind of very, you know, unique in that position, I'd say. But, made I was doing things from, you know, clearing out vineyards one day to, tagging cattle and a guy from the city originally it was a, it was a bit of a journey and a bit of fun along the way but kind of led to where i am now so i'm always thankful for that as well
0: nice yeah i'm asking i, I worked a vintage down it was kind of in a in a bigger winery and on limestone coast it was for limestone yeah. coast wines so that was kind of cool got to experience that i went up to Nuriot. i don't know how you say Tupa, noriopa yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, i'll give you credit for that That was close enough Went to go see the Penfolds, you know, the winery, and Oliver Crawford, Ollie Crawford, was advising for us while we were there. So he was able to kind of get a connection. But
3: yeah, yeah. yeah.
0: I'm big. Sorry, I was gonna say, big fan of Aussie Wines. I was able to do the full tour of everything in that southwest, southeast corner and Tassie. So excited to hear more about your background there. But Brady, what were you gonna ask
2: earlier? Yeah, I, I mean, you mentioned your kind of journey starting around when you were 18. Was wine a part of, you know, your? Your family life growing up, we we talked to a lot of people who were like, yeah, I was six and it was on the table, and I would get a few droplets here and there. But you know, was that a, a part of your upbringing, or did that really kind of start when you were of
3: age? Yeah, no, it was definitely part of our lifestyle. My, my no one in the family has been part of the business, but enjoy a good aged wine. And the old man, one of his first gifts, which he completely said, you don't know, it's over the top. It's part of the service. Was a six-pack of Penfold Saint-Henri, which is one of our our kind of wines. And you ask any of our winemakers, it's always in their, their top kind of wines that we produce. So over the years, definitely Brady, I was, you know, exposed to a lot of good wines and aged wines. And I think that naturally kind of led into that curiosity of, of what is it? The other thing which is quite unique in high school is we, we studied viticulture and geography as a subject, which... You know, some people may frown upon it, but does turn into careers as we can see here. But that's pretty fascinating in terms of kind of what it brings to the world as well, in terms of you know an agricultural business and things like that. So, not just the trip Mm -hmm. to Bordeaux, there has been that journey that many kind of follow, and you know Australians enjoy a good good drop of wine too. So, yeah, it's been a journey, and the journey continues. But like many of those people, that's been corralled over a glass of wine over the dinner table and sharing those memories. You mentioned Grange
2: as and Penfolds as a brand being sort of aspirational, obviously Grange being, you know, maybe the most aspirational globally for you. Was that the case just in kind of your career and where you wanted to end up? Or is that the case across Australia, like as Grange standing out as kind of an aspirational label and a brand within a brand?
3: Yeah, I think, you know, if you take myself and and Australians and it probably combines in terms of what that, that presents itself. But, you know, if you're in Australia and you mentioned to someone, hey, Grange, it is that kind of you know, iconic symbol, the heritage listed brand and like, kind of product in Australia, which kind of shows how important it is. I think it also goes to the story, right, of, of Grange and, you know, the pioneering spirit of Max Schubert who created it, you know, defied the family almost with hidden Granges in 1957, 58 and 59 when asked to stop making it. So there is that kind of intuition of that that pioneering spirit, which I think lives... And resonates with a lot of, you know, people in Australia and around the world. I think it, everyone loves a good story. And, and this is kind of one of those that's kind of led on to, you know, the next phase of Penfold's journey. So I'd say as an individual, that that kind of cultural icon that Grange represents. Definitely is something that kind of you look up to, right? As a as a young fellow. And, and doesn't matter what age you are or where you are in your career, it still has that kind of aspirational piece to it. And I think mm-hmm. the other thing that's interesting is we have a, you know, a, a very the culture of Penfolds is we have, you know, people who work for the, the family all their lives and the winery. And there's only ever been four chief winemakers for for Penfolds, Max Schubert, John Deval, Don Dida, and currently Peter Gager, who's been at the, with the winery for over 30 years. But They say the three most important jobs in Australia, one is the prime minister, one is the Australian cricket captain, and then the third is obviously the Penfold's chief winemaker. So (laughs) there is that, that element of importance within our own cultural identity as well. So... And I think Peter's probably doing maybe a better job than both the cricket captain and the prime minister, but we won't get into (laughs) that today.
0: We had a Grange collection of vertical a few months back, but could you give our listeners a little bit of a quick history on just Penfolds and then a little bit of the nuance of that Grange story? Cause I think that was, it's so interesting.
3: Yeah. I mean, so the the winery actually dates back to 1844. So as a doctor, Dr. Christopher Rawson Penfold and his wife, Mary, and they came from England, to Adelaide in South Australia. So they actually spent 127 days at sea coming across <laughs> wow. across the world which is which is pretty remarkable and it was just after the colony of adelaide was forming so australia goes back to 1788 so it was kind of the foundation of adelaide which is the capital city of, of south australia and so they actually formed magilla state which is kind of pretty close to the city centre of Adelaide back then. You can imagine, that you know, the, the area is just kind of getting built up. So sure. McGill Estate still our, our spiritual home. But back then, Dr Penfold is a general practitioner and he was prescribing tawneys for medicinal purposes. So if you had something like anemia you'd actually get a tawny back then, right? <laughs> so that was also the foundation for the Australian wine industry across the board is tawneys and fortifieds. And it was really Mary who was you know, one of those, we love a good unsung female hero. She was the one kind of driving the winery side of things in the production. So kind of along the lines, that was originally what we were built on. And, you know, we've had a lot of milestones over the years, things like, you know, we purchased the Klimna vineyard in 1945, which people don't realise has the world's oldest continuous producing Cabernet Sauvignon vines. Mm. They date back to the 1880s, but It was really around, you know, the the 1940s when a lot of immigrants were moving to Australia, Greeks, Italians, that table wine started to pick up. And it was actually Max who started as what we call back then a fetch and carry boy or a lackey and basically did all the jobs that no one wanted to do. Who knows? He was probably scrubbing toilets and basically worked his way up to become the chief winemaker. And the family actually sent him to Spain to study sherry and Portugal for port. because essentially that's what we are producing back then. But on his way around, he actually stopped in Bordeaux and there in Bordeaux under Monsieur Christopher Cruz, who kind of took this young Australian under his wing, exposed him to first growth Bordeaux's, you know, Mouton, etc. Also wines with age, so wines 30, 40, 50 years old, took that knowledge back to Australia, Max, and, and said, hey, I want to create my own first growth Bordeaux. So. The first experimental vintage of Grange was in 1951. As I was alluding to before, actually, the family said, you've got to stop making this. One critic came out and said, hey, this tastes like burnt ants." So completely wrote off this wine. (laughs) But at the time, obviously, it was was kind of youthful and it was designed to age. So that's where you hear the hidden Granges coming in 1957, 58 and 59, where Max was essentially making this wine in secrecy Under the guidance of Geoffrey Penfold Highland, who was the general manager at the time, most of the family was in Sydney. So it was quite a distance. And it wasn't until a few years later that, you know, some some of these wines softened out and they entered the 1955 into the Sydney Wine Competition and actually won. So obviously everything changed. It changed the landscape for for Penfold in general. But to put it in context, that bottle of 1951 Grange that was probably $2 a bottle back then, if you, you get your hands on it, now sells at auction for over $150,000 for one bottle. Mm. So it kind of, it sets the benchmark for us as a top-down approach and then what we call the house style. So it really has an interesting relevance. And, and today, obviously, that same style and techniques that they use is consistent across the board as they make it year in and year out, multi-regional approach, but highly collected around the world. Obviously, the critics you know, are supportive of it as well. So it's one of those, I like to say it's a bit like a, Nice time piece, you know what I mean? This thing goes generations and it is after that, modeled after those Bordeaux that will go 30, 40, 50 years, depending on the vintage. So pretty unique.
0: Yeah. No, that's that story always gets me. I always find it super interesting that you know he was doing that. And people initially told him it was bad. I like how he said burnt ants, not just like ants. It was they were burnt. That's hilarious. <laughs> who knows
3: what who knows what he was enjoying back then? But uh, we'll <laughs> let him have that descriptor. I won't be burning any ants anytime soon. Well, speaking of the, the
0: Penfolds house style, can you explain a little bit more about the, the bin nomenclature? And I know I know you guys have the St. Henri, but then there's a few other like high, nice rear of your bottlings that have like, you know, bin, whatever number may come after it. So can you explain that a little bit and how that might trickle out to what you guys are doing now?
3: Yeah, pretty confusing, first and foremost. But basically what happened is after Max was making Grange and was reinstated by the family there's this BINs evolution kind of in the late 1950s and 60s. And basically BIN stands for Batch Identification Number. So Mm. if you can kind of go with me on this imaginary journey of going down to the cellars in Penfolds, Max has had the green light, and all of a sudden there's kind of this period of experimentation. And so he was trialling all these different varietals and different wines, and basically that was a storage mechanism. So if you had BIN 28, which was actually started in 1959... It's always Shiraz. So I literally named it after what that, that trial was, Bin 389 in 1960, Bin 128 in 1962. So it, basically today what it represents is a shortcut, but as a collector or a consumer, it's kind of a, a consistency, if you will. Mm-hmm. So what actually happens is after harvest there's a, a process, what we call classification, where the winemakers, all the fruit comes has come in and they taste these wines blind and they're grading the wine. So start with range we'll go to 389 and some of the other ones and i'll go through the whole portfolio and i'll basically classify these these different wines year in and year out so as a consumer if i had bin 389 and if it, i should say if it's not up to quality it won't get made so if i'm if i'm getting a bin 389 which is affectionately known as baby grange it's always going to be cabernet and shiraz it's always going to be about 50 50 it's always going to be american oak sourcing in that instance may vary because it's what we call a multi-regional blend but it's basically i'm picking up a 389 we're trying to make that as close as you can year in year out yes there'll be slight vintage variations and in some countries where english isn't their native language it acts as a shortcut so whilst there's you know different numbers there's no hierarchy saying hey 707 is better than 389 it's a style and once you know that style and you like it there is that element. So once it goes on, the, the the Penfolds badge and then the number, that's basically what they're trying to make to each year, not just in Australia, but around the world. So unique to Penfolds can be confusing, but once you get into it, pretty unique. Wow. Yeah, Pen-
2: Penfolds have, has had a lot of success too, bottling not just, you know, wines from Australia, but coming over and doing maybe like the Wines of the World project. Did I get the name of that yeah, right? Yeah, Wine of the yeah Yep. How... Is it a challenge? I assume it is a challenge, but you know, for an iconic brand like Penfolds, maybe it's a touch easier to take that brand to another place and to know that, like to have consumers know that the same quality and excellence is going to be there when you're not you know, working in the same region where kind of the legacy was founded.
3: Yeah, I mean, it's it's been, it's a really good question, Brady, because it's been a real journey for us, I would say across the board. So part of the thinking was, well, what does our next 175 years look like? for Penfolds, but that actually started many years ago. So if you take California, for example, or Champagne or Bordeaux or where these countries of origin are, Grange is all what we always call a multi-regional blend. So we, essentially what Max had, he was trying to find the best fruit that he could year in and year out to make that consistent style. And so that classification process I was talking about allows for that consistency. They don't know where it's coming from, they don't know the vineyard, and so that, that's been the approach. We've been going to the best vineyards in Australia. So what does the next 175 years look like? Well, what's just holding us to these iconic regions within Australia? So first and foremost, we partnered with our friends at TNO in Champagne, a block here, a row there, Groncro vineyards, top-down approach. Mm-hmm. And then in California, we started the project 20 years ago where we actually purchased a vineyard. We took cuttings from our Kalimna vineyard, the one I mentioned before, McGill Estate, the home of Penfolds. And we grafted the on and started this vineyard just to see. We've got a natural curiosity. We love innovation. What would a Penfolds wine look like in another region? So we bought a vineyard in Paso Robles originally in Syrah, led us to Napa and Cabernet. And we're using the same techniques that we would use in Australia. So And our winemakers are flying over. So what we're doing is we're using an in instance of, of Quantum, which is our flagship, the wine of the world that we're, you're referring to,
0: mm-hmm. header boards,
3: submerging the cap like we would on Grange, We're using rack and return processes. We're finishing in barrel fermentation and say, you know, Peter's coming over or Steph Dutton, one of our senior winemakers, or Andrew Baldwin, who's now done 43 vintages with us. So the throwaway line for us is it's it's Californian sun above, Californian soil below, but everything else in between is truly Penfolds. And it's Mm -hmm. still got that kind of Penfold signature, but it's also paying respect to the local or region and what it is. And I think... There's no limit on time for us being 178 years old this year, but, you know, to get it right. And that's, you know, quality is the utmost important, but we're essentially crafting Penfolds wines in different regions, not to come in and say, hey, we're better than you, but something different. And so you, you alluded to what the wine of the world is. During that classification process, what actually happened with our Quantum and our Bin 149, our two top wines in that tier, is we'd made this lovely blend of Napa Valley Cabernet, but something different, what have you. We actually brought over some A-grade fruit from Australia just for comparative reasons. What does A-grade fruit from Australia look like versus Napa Valley? And during that process, one of the winemakers actually added just a small percentage, 13% into that quantum blend. So now you've got something, again, all together, something unique to the wine world, something more international in profile, and there's something to always the first releases in terms of investment too because 2018, whether it's 1951 Grange or 2018 Quantum, there is that collectability part to it as well. So we're only on our second vintage, but we're still on the 2018, we'll release the 2019 next year. But again, something unique to the world of wine and kind of that journey in terms of those multi-countries that we're looking at and who knows where's next, but we'll take our time to find it.
0: You bring up collectability there. We've talked to producers in different regions throughout the world. And I feel like everybody has a different view on the secondary market and their impact that it has for their, their brand. As Penfolds is still kind of working as like You know, Australia is an emerging region in the grand scheme of things. Although Penfolds has been around for a long time, do you view the secondary market kind of potentially driving some prices or a lack of availability to be beneficial? Because it's getting, you know, you guys are on the plots now. I feel like you guys are becoming associated with some of these top wines in the world. How, How does how do you perceive that from brand side?
3: Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, first and foremost at Penfolds, we pride ourselves on that the ageability component, as I mentioned before. So being able to age over time. And I think if you look at kind of a, you know, where your quality of wine is in terms of that kind of secondary market is, is important. And then you get to the scarcity piece, right? So if you look at 1951 Grange, the first vintage there, we'd estimate there's maybe 30 bottles out there still around the world. We don't know for sure, but, you know, if someone drinks one, You know what I mean? Okay, all Mm -hmm. of a sudden there's only 29. So naturally your perception of value is going to go up. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, how many have you made? Most recently we just launched our G series, which is multiple vintages of Grange blended together. So we had G3, Mm -hmm. three vintages of Grange, G4 and G5, and that's the last blend we'll do. We're already seeing on the secondary market, if you've got all three, they're going for $25,000 for the pack. And so that was originally $2,500 the individual bottle but again mm. that scarcity and demand there's only a handful of of these wines made so naturally i think there's demand in the secondary market depending on what it is you know how much availability is you know around the world things like that which actually dictate it mm. and i think you're finding people want to collect wine as an investment like jewelry like a watch like cars because it does perform very well as an investment And then some people like myself and probably you guys like to enjoy a bottle of these wines every now and then (laughs) as well, which is really important. But it has become more of a component. As an example, we have collectors who don't even drink wine, but they invest (laughs) in wine. So, again, it kind of shows where people's portfolios are headed. How does
2: Go on, Brittany. I'll follow up You can kind of look at the secondary market and investment, I feel like, two different ways from a brand. You can either say, oh, like we need to try and capture capture some of that value ourselves and find ways to do that as a business or we can kind of take the brand equity maybe that's inherent to your label and your brand kind of rising in the like secondary market and in critical acclaim and these kinds of things a product that's desirable i'm sure there's some you know down the line monetary value and just the brand equity how do you think about that one of those two paths in between brand equity and really trying to capture some of that secondary market value uh, yourselves or is that, or is there a third way?
3: Yeah. I mean, I think first and foremost, we like the, the vintage in the wine is, is, is going to, what's going to help drive a second. It's almost like a process, right? It's going to drive the secondary market. So as an example, in certain vintages, we create wines called special bin. So not range just different, but you know, the stars align. It's an incredible vintage, we think it's going to age and so they're very rare so as an example block 42 the world's oldest producing cabernet vines dating back to the 1880s we've only produced a single vineyard from that that lot i think it's six or seven times it's, in its history right normally it goes into our flagship 707 so to commemorate that in 2004 we actually did this unique packaging it's called the penfolds ampule worth a Google search and images that, if you look yeah. at it. And so, again, it's not just about the wine, it's how does it come, what is it, what does that perceive value. We only crafted 12 of these globally, one's mm. in our museum, so 11 commercially available. When you look at it, you'll see this almost art and wine coming together. It's kind of a cylinder shape, comes in this beautiful kind of wooden cabinet that's, you know, you know, a couple metres tall. Or, you know, I'm about 5'10", I wish I was taller, but it's about, about that height. <laughs> And so the only way to open that, there's no screw cap, no cork on it. The only way to open that is actually by breaking the glass. So it's a handmade tungst, almost like a clip. And when you look at it, there's kind of almost like a tip to it. So it actually disassembles, clips on it, and it breaks the glass. A 750 ml bottle was $168,000 each. Now, again, you go back to the model of like, again, celebrating kind of secondary value. What does that look like? And to your question, Brady, you've got kind of equity in the brand, something unique, never to be repeated, perceived value in terms of quality, you know, critics of 100 point wine, perfect score. We know this wine will last 30, 40, 50 years old. So nobody's opened one, but again, 11, 10, as they count down, you'll get that kind of scarcity as that goes. And we've already seen demand for it. Hey, do you have any more of those ampules? Well, we don't have any to sell. They're all out there on the secondary market. So it's almost you need both to collide in terms of what that looks like in that secondary piece and perceived value. And I think as time goes on, naturally you see, you know, depending on what it is, that value increase over time. So, you know, you, you guys mentioned you've got a, a vertical, or, you know, some of your clients have a vertical, which again is you add on to it, those number of bottles in 1951 or whatever the vertical is, would drastically diminish over time or drastically will, will diminish. And then that perceived value will naturally go up based on scarcity. So, Yeah, and for us as Penfolds, it's important that we maintain that image, and we do things like the ampules or recorking clinics to keep driving that that secondary market demand, which is important.
0: Yeah, I think what is interesting to me about Penfolds too, and makes it such a strong brand is, and you see this with a few whiskey brands too, is you guys do have these top tier aspirational and limited edition stuff, but the the lowest tier Penfolds is always still quality as well. So I feel like you have quality that's affordable. And then going up all the way through the range, the quality is consistent. And I think that's important to try to onboard somebody who may not be able to afford even a, grain, a bottle of Grange, much less the ampule as well. Is that something you guys kind of think about in your in your marketing as a whole, maybe leading aspirational and then providing quality at all ranges?
3: Oh, oh for sure. Absolutely. I mean, that accessibility point is, is critical, right? Because I mean, there's so many occasions when you're enjoying a glass of wine, whether it's, you know... You're at a restaurant, you know, and you're having a glass, or whether you know you're celebrating a special occasion, whether that's a wedding or what have you. So, been through our nine, as an example, been grain, baby Grange is what I mentioned before like that is the epicenter of what we do. And it's the it is actually the most collected wine in Australia and one of the most collected wines around the world. You now, it retails for you know $60, $60 US as well. So, it's you know, it's an expensive bottle, it's not the price of Grange, but it will age too. The reason it's called baby Grange, is it will age. 20, 30 years as well in a, in a good vintage. So there is still that collectability point. So again, to your point, Bill, is like it doesn't matter where you're coming in, hopefully there's that quality and you're getting that accessible price range. And then I think naturally what we've seen is as people kind of progress in their careers or or you know, family or what have you, and, and life changes, then they kind of aspirationally go up. The other thing that that's pretty unique, I think it's pretty cool, is we do recorking clinics. So we're the only winery in the world to do that. And what actually it means is you can bring any Penfolds red wine that's 15 years or older. It could be Grange, 389. It could be Canunga Hill, our entry level. And basically what ha- happens over time naturally is that allege level, the fill in the bottle will decrease because of the, the oxygen and things like that. basically gets to a danger zone. So what we actually do is, is once it's in that danger zone, you can bring them in. We open them up with your permission. You sit down with a winemaker. You get to taste it. Obviously, it's gas and everything. We actually top it back up, recork it, certify it, and then someone from Christie's or Sotheby's or an auction house will give you a value of what that is. It's a complimentary service. It doesn't cost you a cent. And for us, it's like kind of like a nice car, right, after-sale service. So we've recorked over 160,000 bottles globally, and we pop them up all around the world, whether that's you know, Sydney, Shanghai, London, Miami. We just did one in Los Angeles a couple of weeks ago. So we pop them up where the collectors are, and it's pretty unique national geographic followed us around because what we actually find is there's these stories in the bottle you know these are family heirlooms people coming in cradling these bottles like the <laughs> third child or whatever that mm-hmm. may be so but the other thing for us there is actually selfishly if it's not up to standard it gets a white sticker we cork it we can't certify it. It takes bad bottles off the market as well so when we're talking about investing in wine the bad bottles are getting removed again the scarcity piece as well that's the element well,
0: that's that's really smart. I've never. I'm sad. I I don't mean I don't have any Penfolds on me, but I'm sad. I missed the Los Angeles one. I would have loved to come just check it out. We're bit. popping them up all the
3: time. We probably pop up in in the Americas three a year now that we're out of the pandemic. So it's pretty exciting. Pretty unique. Awesome. If Penfolds is this paragon of kind
0: of legacy and it's a really well known established brand, how how does that sit with? And I have to ask now about a little bit about your parent company. You guys have wines like. Treasury Wine States has like 19 crimes. And that's also, you know, hailing from Australia. How do you guys straddle this line between promoting the, the top end of Australian wines and also these kind of new up-and-comer, maybe more entry-level, like very entry-level wines as well? How does that work, you know, as a Australia promo as a whole?
3: Yeah, so, I mean, we segment the brands naturally in terms of just the way we show up, right? Because I think they're very different propositions to the consumer. Mm-hmm. You know, a brand like 19 Crimes is an example. It, it, it behaves differently. You know, you've got Snoop Dogg on the Kelly the Red and then you've got the Australian portion. And mm-hmm. it's about, you know, I think, I think wine in general is a lifestyle proposition first and foremost. So in different occasions, things like that. So we're also thinking about what does the next generation of wine drinkers look like? to your point earlier, Billy, where where are you coming into into the brand? So look at something like 19 Crimes and and kind of what Snoop's done. He's brought in 30% new consumers into the category, Mm -hmm. which is an astounding kind of statistic in terms of what that that represents. I think, you know, the the way that the brands show up, you know, Penfolds are still, despite being 178 years old, we're still very innovative and curious and what's next. There's no complacency in what we do. Something like 19 Crimes probably... You know, there's a bit more out there. The first brands are augmented reality in terms of the way that you know the stories and the authentic stories are being told, and you know, entertainment in some of some degree. But also adapting that digital technology. We've all got a, a mobile device in our hands, so mm-hmm. kind of show up differently. But I think it's important to understand wine in general in terms of where you are on that journey, and then hopefully some of these these consumers one day may kind of come over to Penfolds and 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 kind of enjoy wines as they, as they develop their own palates in terms of that journey. So, yeah.
0: Yeah, There's a book called Wine Wars 2. We actually had him on the podcast and he basically talks about terroirists, people who basically think wine should just all be about place and the story. And then other people who just want more people to drink wine. And they're always kind of like battling because it's like you could bore somebody to death just talking about how a wine's made instead of just saying, here, drink some wine. So that makes a lot of sense. I guess what I was kind of also getting at is, Where do you see Australia is on its kind of popularity outside of the country now, knowing it had such a strong early 2000s? And all I know is when I was down there, I was exposed to a whole world of really high quality wine that I didn't, you know, wasn't aware existed as much. So how do you how do you see that curve kind of going now global awareness wise?
3: Yeah, I think, you know, in this country, in the US, when I was here, well, hopefully it wasn't the, the deceleration It kind of started when I came to the market, so <laughs> don't blame me. But I think, you know, as you mentioned, Billy, there's some amazing wines. You know, we have 64 geographical indications, which are the equivalent of like American viticulture areas here. So there's a lot of diversity in regions, a lot of different varietals, whether that's a beautiful dry Riesling or Semion's. And it's just exposure, right? So I think mm. as you look to the future of Australia, there's it's kind of defining that more premium range. You know, I think I think the more entry-level wines were, you know, prominent in people's minds when they were exposed to Australia. but didn't really graduate to that kind of level of sophistication, diversity within that. So I think that's the kind of next path for Australia in terms of exposing people to these beautiful wines and still affordable wines, but just a little bit more kind of diversity to it as well so i think that's the next kind of phase for australia and hopefully people kind of expose themselves to it because there's some pretty unique and, and special wines out there and i think you know they work with meals at different occasions and things like that so it's pretty exciting to what you've seen and, and billy i'm sure you've tried a few over the years too of, of what that looks like oh yeah yeah
0: i came back being quite the missionary for the australian okay. wine industry well, on, on that note as well, where, so where is Penfolds looking, knowing, like looking to the future, planning this 175 years with the climate and everything going on as well? How how have you guys made any plans? Are you diversifying where else you're looking in other countries to potentially partner with? Are you looking to change, you know, viticulture techniques? Like, how, how are you guys working with the current realities and future?
3: Yeah, huge, hugely important. Like climate change is real. Let's, let's kind of put that out there. We're still looking, Bordeaux is the next region where we've, announced we're going into very small production but as we grow that but even within Penfolds we have a program what we call future first which is all about kind of next generation and, and the environment and doing our bit as well so that encompasses so much when you think about kind of sustainable practices from you know people generally in the community from our agricultural practices which obviously with you know climate we're even probably more exposed to so we're 100% sustainably farmed already, but we're trying to reduce our renewable energy by 2023. So we've got some pr- pretty aggressive goals. And then 2030, net carbon neutral. So in terms of that production side, we're, we're looking at different materials, 100% recyclable, reusable materials within the winery in terms of that. And then how are we giving back to communities and growing that in terms of awareness? But in terms of regions and where we're going, we're seeing those fluctuations. We're trying different things. We're looking at... You know, how can we bury certain things within the soil to pull out carbon emissions? So there's a huge undertaking and it's not just, you know, flick the switch, it's a journey for us and not just as a business, which is important, it's also what our employees and, and colleagues are very passionate about. So watch this space, Billy. There's going to be so much more that we're doing in terms of probably being a bit more vocal about it too and being a leader in the category and hopefully locking arms with our our colleagues make different wines across the globe to make sure that we're moving forward together because i think it's not just one person or one company it's it's going to be a group to get to where we need to go i always think it's interesting to see companies
0: like penfolds that are exported so broadly like the efforts that you guys can do and you're talking about like packaging and recyclability like even just you know people don't think about cutting a few ounces off each bottle or or changing the closure a little bit could have like a a profound difference for somebody who creates so many wines that go so far over all over the world.
3: Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, you know, there's, there's impacts across the board, right? So I think you look at that kind of whole journey from grape to glass and where are those elements across the board that you can kind of tweak. And where do you start, you know, multi-country of origin as well is is about trying to localize as well, just as much as it is about kind of bringing something new to the world. So, you know, things like that pretty unique in, in our space, I would say in terms of kind of, Higher end producers doing that, but again, you know, hopefully we're leading trends as well that will actually benefit the environment, and our future generations as well. So, critically important. Of the of the different
2: regions that you've kind of mentioned that y'all are moving into or have moved into already, we kind of have Napa and Paso Robles and and now Bordeaux. Just from your perspective, I'm sure there's like. Within your viticultural and winemaking practices, I'm sure this an, another kind of explanation. But just from your perspective, which of those regions maybe is most complementary to what you guys have built in Australia, or maybe is most analogous to what y'all do? I would like for me, I would think, oh, Paso Herbos kind of makes a lot of sense. But what's your perspective there?
3: Yeah, I mean, they're they're all different, right? And it's kind of it. It goes back to that house style. I would say is like, what does a house style in Bordeaux? technically mean you know what i mean i think to your point around to and different regions expressively they all look a little bit a little bit different maybe some in the old world is probably a little bit more different to the new world in terms of just stylistic profiles but it's about us getting it right and taking the time to get it right and it's also how you know we talk about you know without geeking out too much like oak right so so for us and max shebert rightly said you know if we're pulling fruit from rutherford what is that tannin structure? What is the complementary oak? So it's about the oak marrying with the fruit, as the fruit marrying with the oak should be harmonious across the board, essentially creating a balanced wine. So things like that, making sure that we're trying. We, we use the same oaks, AP John, around the world for that consistency as well. So there's little finite details that kind of make that, that make it special and make it truly penfolds. But to your point, I'd probably say, oh, well, but you know, there's always exploration, never say never, right? That's kind of our, Our motto as long as it complements what we're doing and our philosophy and that's our philosophy right other people have different philosophies but i think that's what makes it fun and cool at penfolds is nothing's off the table at
2: the end of the day and the personal kind of preference question if you're drinking either syrah or cab you can do one for both where where would you preference to drink from which region outside of australia
3: it's that's a loaded question, Brady. It's, I have three kids in full disclosure, and people always say, well, what's your favorite kid? I say, well, what's, what day is it? And I'll tell you, but I love them all just as much. But, you know, I'm one of those people that just loves exploration in terms of wine. That's why I love it. I love getting out of bed every day, but, you know, I love, I love the Rhone. I love, I love Syrah and what it represents from thinking outside of, of Penfolds as well. You know, in Cabernet, you know, I'm in the backyard here of Napa Valley at the moment, beautiful Cabernet's here, but around the world, I think there's so much of what wine offers in terms of diversity and, and fun and exploration. And I think that's what keeps me going. But Brady, we'll have to crack a few bottles, mate, and I'll, then I'll give you my answer. <laughs>
2: <laughs> we'll put together a tasting and we can do some ranking for analysis. <laughs> <laughs> analysis.
0: Right before we wrap up here, how is the Australia, how is the vintage kicking off so far? Is yep. it a, yeah, where are we? It's pretty early days, but.
3: Yeah, so we. it's kind of the reverse. so. Just concluded vintage in California around October, November, and then they'll go into picking around February through May. So we're, we're kicking off. Our winemakers are going to take a a well-deserved break just before that, and then they'll kick off around February and then continue through. So at the moment, looking pretty good. Had a lot of of rain over the last kind of couple of years, actually, in Australia, but that hasn't been a bad thing coming out of drought. But so far, so good. But who knows? It's that level of consistency and balance and even ripening that we're looking for. So, so far, so good, but we'll keep an eye on it day by day. So if you guys do a
0: blend of vintage that includes Australian and Northern Hemisphere wines, are you doing like 20... would did you ever cross the vintage like would you take 22 fruit and blend it with the new 23 fruit that's about to come out or would you just do 23 across the board
3: we, we would make it consistent just from mm. legality standpoint so it's like it doesn't become a non-vintage non-vintage yeah. ten, <laughs> ten to be the vintage behind and then that will will blend the two together so but then obviously like the g series is going to be a non-vintage so again just complementing what it is so yeah
0: yeah. That's what I had to ask. Cause if you do in the G series, you're open to the non-vintage. So it could, yeah. it could be interesting. I always think about it cause I have my, all the Australian bottles that I bought here. I'm trying just to figure out how old they actually are in relation to their wine age, not just their year. So yeah.
3: The year stamped on there is the year where it doesn't matter which hemisphere it's coming from. So yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. But I'm just thinking like my say 2018 was the vintage I was down there. Those had almost an extra year of development than my 2018s from the northern hemisphere, so it's like it's kind of interesting there to think yeah.
3: about. Yeah, I think it's your reverse thinking, right? The water does spin the other way in the, in the toilet, <laughs> too, just so you know. <laughs> you'd, be,
0: you'd be surprised how many friends asked me. That was the first thing I like, I landed. Nobody was like, "Are you safe?" They're like, "Which way does the water turn in the yeah. <laughs> The
3: real question, exactly. No, that's
2: hilarious. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining, Brady. Do you have anything else before we wrap up? I think that was great. It's always cool to hear about more about these kind of legacy brands that are so monolith or not. What's the word? Monolith? Behemoth. Behemoth. Large? I don't know. Famous. <laughs> well Behemoth of brands that are like, yeah, are, are aspirational, not just for Australians, but for, for folks around the world. So it's good to hear a little bit more in depth there and appreciate you coming on.
3: Awesome. Thanks, Brady. Thanks, Billy. Looking forward to sharing a glass soon, guys. So uh, we'll see you soon. Thanks. Cheers.
0: All right. Well, that was our interview with Tim Irwin. I hope you all enjoyed learning a little bit about Penfolds and take a little bit of this sparkling knowledge into your new year. We will be back with another episode next week and see you in 2023. Cheers.
1: To check out our current offerings and to sign up for the Vint platform, find us at www.vint.co. That's www.vint.co. For questions, comments, or feedback on the Vint podcast, please email us at support at vent.co. Vint and VV markets are offering securities pursuant to Regulation A. Our offering circular as amended can be found on the SEC website. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. Investments such as those on the Vint platform are speculative and involve substantial risks to consider before investing. We may provide communication that may contain certain forward-looking statements that are subject to various risks and uncertainties. Information provided in any communications, including this podcast, is not legal, business, or tax advice. All prospective investors should consult a legal, tax, or business advisor concerning the subject matter of any communications and any offering.